Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. Should the U.S. government force young women to register for the draft or stop forcing young men to do so? Edward Hasbrook is a longtime member of the War Resisters League and maintains one of the most comprehensive websites about the selective service, the draft, draft registration and draft resistance. You can check it out at resistors.info. Edward Hasbrook was one of 20 people who were prosecuted for organizing resistance to draft registration in the 1980s, and he spent four and a half months in a federal prison camp as a result. Uh, Ed Hasbrook, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me on, David. Uh, it's great to have you on. Before we turn to what's on the agenda now in, in Congress and in the world of, of activism, uh, what happened in the 1980s and what was the, the success story there? Um, it's, a, it's a fairly unknown success story uh, and forgotten even by a lot of the people who were involved even then. What had happened was that uh, after the Vietnam War, uh, the strength of opposition to both the war and the draft was strong enough to get even draft registration completely ended for a five-year period from 1975 to 1980. Draft registration was resumed in 1980 uh, at the end of the Jimmy Carter administration when Carter was uh, trying to show that he was sufficiently uh, militarist uh, in response to uh, the Iranian Revolution, the so-called hostage crisis. He was during the campaign against Ronald Reagan, and he was trying to show that he could be as tough as Reagan could be. That's a, that's a hard bill to follow, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, Reagan, and, who was cutting deals with the Iranian hostage takers, but that's another story. So the stated reason, uh, so at that time, uh, Carter proposed and Congress agreed to bring back draft registration. Um, the stated reason was in case we needed to deploy you large numbers of U.S. troops to Afghanistan on the side of, guess which side we were fighting on then? We were supporting the so-called Mujahideen, as they were called then, who were the people who uh, went on to christen themselves the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Yeah, to to, so I, to be I, clear, I, Edward, we, we, I have many veterans on this show. When you use the term we, you're referring to a criminal enterprise you were resisting and going to prison in opposition to, right? Well, I, I, I refer to the U.S. government. And, I mean, they do claim, like, now I say they, the government claims to act in our name. And if we do not do what we can to oppose that, we bear a degree of responsibility for what it does. And so back in 1980, uh, there was a debate, actually, which getting a little ahead of ourselves, but there was a, there was a, there was a debate. Um, Carter originally proposed to require both men and women to register for the draft. Congress spent some months debating that in the face of a lot of protest. There were demonstrations by tens of thousands of people, uh, which seemingly had no effect at all on Congress, and they went ahead and voted to require men but not women to register for the draft starting in, in 1980. And since then, men have been required to register uh, when they turn 18 and to tell the Selective Service every time they move until they turn 26. But what happened was that there was, um, although the, the protest, the marching in the streets, the complaint had really no effect, direct action had a big effect. This was one of the great success stories of nonviolent direct action during what were otherwise pretty dark 
times of the Reagan era. Uh, the number of people who simply ignored the, the call to register for the draft was many times larger than even the most optimistic of us in the anti-draft movement had expected. The government, after floundering around for a couple of years, uh, eventually decided for want of anything else they could think of to do about this massive resistance to uh, hold some show trials of a few of the people they thought were the most vocal non-registrants in order to intimidate everybody else into registering. And I was one of 20 people, only 20 people across the country, who were picked out um, uh, to be prosecuted. And although you know, most of us were convicted, some of us did go to prison, but the show trial served only to call attention to the resistance and call attention to the fact that only the people who spoke up publicly could possibly be prosecuted, because the government had to prove that we knew we were supposed to register, which they could only do by using our own public statements, which were you know, introduced in court against us. So registration went down from there and has never recovered. And as former Selective Service and Justice Department officials have recently confirmed, uh, the government decided in 1987 that uh, enforcement was hopeless and they suspended any effort to try to enforce uh, the law and make people register. So for the last 30 years, it's been possible for people to ignore registration completely um, with uh, no risk that they're actually going to, to face any criminal sanctions. So what percentage, of, what percentage of young men, 18 to 26, uh, do, re do register with Selective Service? Do you know? We don't really know. There has not been an audit of Selective Service and its database by the GAO since 1982. Um, a lot of people do register at some point um, because they want to get student loans or some participate in some other federal program that requires that. But although, as I mentioned, you're supposed to, it's probably a surprise to you even, David, I would guess, to hear that people are supposed to report uh, to Selective Service every time they move until they turn 26, essentially nobody does. Yeah. And that one audit in 1982, just two years after registration started, uh, the GAO found that 20 to 40 percent of the addresses are were already then out of date. Today, it's pretty clear that the overwhelming majority of addresses on file with Selective Service are obsolete because nobody tells Selective Service when they move, and that if there were to be a draft based on this list, it would be a fiasco because most of the induction notices would end up in the dead letter office. Yeah. Shockingly, I'm over 26 at this point, but uh, I, I certainly did not report uh, where I lived to the Selective Service when I was under 26. Uh, with with even Hillary Clinton now pretending to be in favor of free college, uh, you know, if that becomes a reality in this country, as in other countries, they'll have to come up with some other means of, of pressuring young men uh, to to register for Selective Service than, than student aid. But, but what uh, what has put this topic back on the agenda in Congress and otherwise uh, in recent months? Well, as I, as I mentioned, there was a debate back in 1980 about whether to include women. There were lawsuits challenging uh, whether it was constitutional or whether it was discriminatory to require men but not women to uh, register for the draft, one of which went to the Supreme Court in 1981, which upheld 
requiring only men to register because at that time the military only wanted men in combat. And since a draft would be needed for combat, the Supreme Court found that uh, this choice to register only men was rationally related to this government purpose. And as the courts usually do, unfortunately, they deferred to the military judgment about the military and put that ahead of anything else. However, now that uh, combat and all roles within the military are being opened up to women, equally with men, that rationale for the constitutionality of requiring men and not women to register clearly is no longer viable. There are already lawsuits, again, renewed lawsuits challenging this, which are likely to be successful. And so seeing the writing on the wall Congress is being forced to choose in one direction, to move in one direction or the other. Either, you know, they have to treat men and women equally. So the question is, do we get rid of the current registration requirement and draft registration, which has failed anyway and would be useless in the event of a draft, or do we double down on this you know, decades-long failure by trying to get women as well as men to register which would be likely to be at least as much of a fiasco, because at least as many women would resist as men have resisted. Um, there's going to be at least as much support for women who are saying they don't want to agree to fight and kill on demand. There's a long history of feminist, anti-war, and pacifist activism. Women have played a leading role over the years in opposition to conscription, even when it was only men who were being drafted. Uh, so, but this is the choice that Congress is faced. They can, it's been, they haven't had a face-saving way out. Draft registration has failed, but there was no way to end it without admitting that it was failed and dealing with the implications of that for war-making uh, policy. But now Congress can't avoid it. And so they're, they're, they're debating that choice of which way to go. They can't end it because they don't need it, because they fight their immoral, criminal, murderous wars without it uh, and have done so just fine for decades and are starting to use robots. I mean, they can't come up with a reason to end it. Well, um, you know, there are some who are saying, well, we should, you know, some liberals who are saying, well, we should end draft registration because we don't need it. But there, there really are still people in Congress who are saying, we want this insurance policy in our back po pocket so that just in case we get into a war that's requiring, you know, millions of frontline troops and producing such massive casualties that, 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 not the active duty forces, not the reserves, not the National Guard, not the mercenaries and uh, contractors who are hiring to fight our wars for us. That we want to be prepared to be able to fight wars that are going to take even more cannon fodder than that, and so we want to be able to rely on having the draft available. This is the sickness of the argument that's being made uh, when you look below the surface for continuing draft registration. Yeah, so and I think this is, this is a big piece of the significance. I think a lot of people have looked at this and thought, well, there's no real threat of the draft, so why should we care? But the point of why folks like me resisted draft registration and why so many women and men supported us in that. Um, I didn't go to prison to stay out of the draft. I could have just blown it off and stayed home and not spoken out and been completely safe, as millions of other people did. I resisted actively because I wanted to use the defeat of the draft as a tool to constrain the war-making power of the government. So we had this half-victory. We stopped the draft, but we never really followed through 
to get the public and Congress and the Pentagon to admit that the draft was not a real option and that they needed to adjust their war-making plans accordingly. That's the follow-through that we need to carry out now as Congress resumes debate on this issue. We're speaking with Edward Hasbrook, whose website is resistors.info. What do you say uh, to the inevitable peace activists who actually want a draft? Uh, I mean, it's incredibly frustrating and, to my mind, uh, grotesque and immoral, but very predictable. Everywhere I go and speak against the draft, I get questions from peace activists who want to end war by having a draft. What, how do you answer that concern? Well, I think the best answer was the one uh, that Dan Ellsberg gave in your conversation with him in San Francisco recently when you were asked about that. And, and Dan said, well, you know, yes, uh, the draft did provoke uh, a larger anti-war movement and brought people into the streets, but the draft also enabled the larger war. And and what Dan Ellsberg said, and I think rightly, was that if we actually had the draft going on and the military had more troops available, you know, at the at the call up, uh, without having to try to recruit them, we'd see much larger numbers of ground troops on the ground in Syria, in Yemen, in who knows how many other more countries. So I, I think he was right on with that and, and saying that you know, part of the lesson of, of Vietnam was the way that the draft enabled a larger war with less public debate. Did, did Dan speak to that topic at the end when I'd gone off to sign books? Because yes, uh, he yes, did. Exactly. Okay. Because during the conversation, I had said the same thing myself, um, and Dan hadn't spoken to it. Uh, well, I agree, of course. Uh, you know, the, the draft gives you bigger wars and more dead, and we haven't had a war since Vietnam that killed anywhere close to 4 million people, uh, maybe 6 million people, including Laos and Cambodia, uh, directly, immediately. Uh, the wars haven't been as bad. Uh, And you can imagine, I mean, wouldn't it have to be an even worse war by a huge measure than Vietnam for them to have a draft now, Uh, given the resistance to it, given the mercenaries and the drones and and so forth? Wouldn't it have to be a a war, you know, approaching World War II uh, or worse for them to have a draft now? There's really, it's it's difficult to imagine what real scenario uh, for a war uh, that that would actually call for those numbers. And so there's another aspect to the draft, um, and we also hear this question about, well, you know, they're not really going to have a draft, it's just registration. Part of the reason why some people on the other side want draft registration, even if they don't actually want a draft now, is that it serves as a tool to collect information that goes to military recruiters. It serves to channel people uh, into the military as uh, volunteers. Um, It constrains people with student debt um, that limits their options uh, after they get out of college, if they go to college. And more broadly, it accustoms everybody to the idea that we owe it to the government to serve, and that somehow fighting for whoever the government wants us to fight is service to the national interest, that the government defines for us what is the national interest, which, of course, is the opposite of democracy. And I have to point out here the, 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 the fallacy for those who say, well, you know, 
aren't you willing to, you know, to fight for American interests? Um, just how poor historically the judgment calls of this government have been. As I said, back in 1980, when draft when registration was brought back, it was to be prepared to intervene in Afghanistan on the side of the Mujahideen. I went to prison for refusing to agree to fight on the side of the Taliban and al-Qaeda. And I think that says about as much as you need to hear about the degree to which we should trust the government's ability to decide for us which wars we should be fighting or on which side, even if you believe in war, which as a pacifist I don't. Yeah, but I think your position and mine is perhaps more popular than we always uh, realize. Uh, there was a, a poll done by Gallup at the end of 2014 in many countries around the world, and one of the questions they always asked was, would you be willing to go and fight in a war for your country? Uh, and I was very pleased to see lots of countries down around 10-15% of people who would ever be willing to fight in a war for their country. In the United States, it was it was quite a bit higher at 44%. Uh, here we have several wars ongoing and always wars ongoing, nothing stopping these people. You don't actually have 44% who actually want to go and fight in a U.S. war because they could just go register and do so tomorrow. Uh, but they want to think of themselves that way. But still, 44% is not a majority. It's not as if everybody in the U.S. public wants to or, or would be willing to go and fight in a war, uh, and yet you have a law requiring that every male and potentially every female of a certain age uh, register to do so with no options for other service or actual service or conscientious objection. Uh, so, I mean, isn't this a very anti-democratic imposition and, and, and violation of our rights? Well, of course it is. And in terms of the other options, you know, as you pointed out, you know, there's, a, there's actually a pretty large number of people who would fight if they thought that there was something that justified it. I mean, there were a lot of volunteers after 9-11. There were volunteers in World War II and so forth. Um, but what people want to do is to make that choice for themselves. And that's precisely the choice that they're not allowed to do now. And even if there were a draft, um, people are allowed to do alternative service as a conscientious objector only if they oppose all wars. Someone who wants to reserve to themselves the choice of which wars to fight does not qualify under the government's definition of a conscientious objector. And so for the majority of people who are not pacifists but do oppose some wars, the only options to avoid being drafted are either the illegal options that they're choosing now, opting out by simply not complying with the law, or political agitation to get this law changed, which is, I think, where we, we really need to go over the next year or so, or we're going to face uh, a long, painful process of women having to organize, mobilize, resist, probably some of them go to prison before the government uh, gives up on trying to enforce draft registration on women the same way it had to do for men. Is that, is that, that movement growing? That. Are people getting active? Are, are women resisting now in a new way? I think women are opposing this, um, while there are relatively few people knowing that it's those who speak out publicly who are going to be singled out, it's mostly fairly quiet. But, I mean, there are encouraging uh, signs uh, to the extent that women are aware of this, uh, that they're outraged. Um, I think Congress is really lagging uh, behind popular sentiment. Um, there's been an effort, I mean, there's been an effort to portray this 
as an issue of women's equality in the military, um, rather than to look at it as coercion into the military. Uh, and it, it divides even some women. I mean, there are liberal women, um, such as Hillary Clinton, and believers in equality for women. Um, uh, I was at a town hall with Congressman Jackie Spire, who's on the Armed Services Committee, who's been one of the advocates of this, uh, this weekend, and she was asked about it and launched into a whole rap about how important it was for women in the military to have equal rights. I'm sorry that being drafted is not a right, it's not a privilege, it's a burden imposed on you uh, when people come to you under the threat of putting you in prison and make you take up a gun and shoot it at whoever they tell you to shoot at. That's that's not a benefit. Um, This is not about women's equality. But there's an effort to, as I say, to efface that whole history of feminist analysis that has led women to oppose the draft even when only men are being drafted. I mean, when men fight, women die too. And war and conscription and militarism and militarism, militarization of society have historically been part of what's criticized as part of the patriarchy, and rightly so. So radical feminists have a long tradition of, of being leaders in anti-war activism that's just being written out of the present debate. But in recent months, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, bills have been blocked, uh, voted down in Congress uh, that on the one hand would have expanded the Selective Service to include women and on the other hand would have ended it uh, for men. Uh, Both of those have been blocked and the one that would have expanded it for women had the support of every good liberal Democrat uh, as defending women's rights to be forced into the military. Uh, And you and I and other opponents of that that expansion found ourselves aligned with right-wing Republicans uh, whose, you know, respect for women's rights is negligible to non-existent. Um, that's that, that's pretty much correct. Um, that the only the only opposition to registering women for the draft that the press and Congress have been willing to acknowledge is what's coming from the socially conservative, sexist often militarist, sexist right wing. Um, We need to make the progressive anti-war critique of the draft. We need to force that into the debate. Congress doesn't want to start talking about their power being constrained by popular direct action. They're not going to do that for us. We need to stand up and talk about it. We need to make clear um, that that we will... fully support young women who refuse to register. And a further evil in the way the proposal is currently couched is that the bill that's moving forward now, um, it's currently in conference between the House and the Senate, but it would uh, add women to draft registration starting with women born in 2000, starting two years from now in 2018. So the the women who are most threatened are 16-year-olds, and I think it's, it's a pretty devious measure to have a deferred start date so that the people you're, whose rights you're threatening are not people who can already vote, but are you know, high school student women um, who are 16-year-olds, um, who are probably going to have relatively limited access and relatively limited empowerment um, to be able to take you know, a kind of high-risk public stance. So I think what we'll likely see is a lot of you know, women just quietly staying home. But it's up to us as a movement um, to make clear that we will support that resistance, um, to be out there saying that the emperor has no clothes. It's just not going to be possible to round up 
every 18-year-old woman and force her to agree to be drafted. It's, it's not realistic. But that's not part of the terms of debate yet. We have to make it so. Yeah, well, I would like the inevitable failure and lack of being realistic to be part of the debate, but also the evil and the madness uh, of the war and the de desirability of having more women fighting in wars, whether forced to or so-called volunteering. I, I mean, nobody is proposing that we have more female police officers out there killing black people in the United States for equality and feminism, right? But it's because the wars are somehow acceptable as something that's not evil uh, that we want to have more females and more gay soldiers and more transgender soldiers and, you know, a progressive military. Um, I, I think that has to be part of the debate, does it not? That, you know, for, for, for me, and, and I, I presume for you too, David, there's no such thing as a progressive military. And the last thing Congress wants is a debate about, you know, whether they're on the right side or the wrong side or should be fighting these wars at all. This is why this is not just, you know, we feel like we're on the, on the defensive, but this is an opportunity um, to force open a kind of debate that hasn't been going on about the legitimacy and the nature of the wars that are being fought. We can use this uh, in a jiu-jitsu kind of way uh, to, to, to break open a debate that hasn't been happening yeah. uh, about war and, and our relationship to it as individual Americans. Um, we have just a few minutes left. Do you know how common it is around the world to force young people to sign up for a potential draft? I mean, does every country do this, uh, or do most countries not do this any longer? I mean, there's been a global trend toward a, a so-called volunteer army. Now, volunteer armies, it should be clear, have lots of problems. Often, as in the U.S., there is a de facto poverty draft that pushes people into the military. But increasingly, among countries that want to call themselves democratic, the trend has been against uh, compulsory service, and there's been growing recognition that uh, conscription violates even basic international human rights law. We're, it's one more place where the U.S. is increasingly out of step with the rest of the world on human rights in all its manifestations. Is, is there any possibility in the years ahead uh, to get a treaty in place uh, that ends conscription, conscription for, uh, for all of its national parties uh, or globally and, and universally? Uh, we're not there yet. I mean, I think what's, you know, the starting point is some degree of allowance for a civilian alternative but that still doesn't solve the problem, and that still results in people being coerced into you know, slave labor for the state as the state defines what their lives should be doing. We may end up next year seeing that kind of debate, which raises yet another round of questions. It may be that the way that people in Congress try to salvage a, some kind of draft for men and women in a way that they hope won't provoke anti-war resistance is to say, well, we're going to expand it even more and have a universal national service plan where everybody has to work in some state-assigned labor for a period of time, and they can choose to do it in the military or in, uh, in a civilian uh, job. Um, that's, that would further divide um, movements against it. Uh, there are some liberals who would support that kind of compulsory service. There are many libertarians um, who would oppose conscription, whether for civilian or military purposes. Yeah, I guess I would oppose it if military were included, but it might be superior to military alone. We, we've got about uh, 20 seconds left. What's your position? Um, 
I, I, I don't think you can separate those out, really. Um, and I don't think that uh, we owe our lives to the government. It's up to us uh, in a democratic society to make our own choices and for government to follow. Very well said, and all of it very well said. And we will have links to your website and articles at talknationradio.org. Edward Hasbrook can be found at resistors.info. Ed, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. My pleasure, and thank you for all you do, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.